Good to see you. It's good to uh, be in the house of the Lord on the first day of the week, and it's truly a blessing for me to have the opportunity to study a portion of, of God's Word uh, with you. Uh, we're going to continue um, our study this morning, a series of studies that really has been going on uh, since back in February, and yes, this one off. No, sorry. There it is. I, I pushed the button, but it didn't come on the first time. Sorry. Okay, where was I? Um, <laughs> so we began a series of studies um, that's been going on back since back in February. Um, and those have been, we, we, back in February, we started talking about uh, the gospel and the Great Commission. And for that month, that's really what we focused on. First, uh, Ian talked about the Great Commission itself, and then we talked about some of the components of the Great Commission, including, uh, as we get into March, the Christ authority that's declared, that, that Jesus declared when he gave the Great Commission, and we talked about some aspects of Christ authority as we went through the month of March. And then last month, we talked about some topics on growing up spiritually in Christ. And now this month, we've been talking about the topic of the church, and a lot of that uh, was planned in preparation of the upcoming meeting that, brace, that Brother Jason uh, spoke about this morning that coming up beginning Wednesday this week. Brother Mike McCorkle is going to be here. We're going to be talking about, the his, he's going to be speaking to us about the history of the church. The history of the church basically starting from Pentecost coming up to current day. And so I know that I'm very excited to, to uh, get a chance to, to listen to those lessons, and I hope you are too. Um, but this morning, um, the topic is the church and prophecy and fulfillment. And so, you know, as I thought about that, you know, a lot, some of these topics we've really covered, or some of this, some of the, the material that we would typically cover in this lesson is we've, we've kind of covered pretty extensively in some of the previous lessons, especially when we talk about the day of Pentecost which, of course, is the fulfillment, was the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And so, um, and so I might, the, my approach may be a little bit different this morning than maybe it typically would have been. But, um, but when, we, when we think about the prophecies uh, of the church, we, we have to remember that the church was a part of God's eternal plan, that before the foundation of the world, he had a plan that he was going to redeem a people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this was all foreordained. So before God said, let there be light, he already had in mind the fact that you and I, not you and I specifically, but that his, he would have a people, those whosoever would, come to him through Jesus Christ would be a part of his chosen people, the people that he would call to himself. And that people would, would, is referred to or called the church. And so God's plan for the church has, has been, has been bef from a, before the foundation of the world. And, and so when we go through the Old Testament, there are a lot of prophecies about the coming Messiah. And those, and those prophecies of the coming Messiah are linked to the people that he would redeem, which would be the church. And so there's a lot of material, a lot of things that we could go back and look at as far as the church and prophecy. But there's three specific that I just want to mention for a little bit this morning. And, and it, it's kind of neat. If you go back and we look at 
Isaiah chapter 2 and Joel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 2, we're going to find prophecies of the church that is going to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. That's kind of neat, isn't it? So at first we're going to look just for a minute in Daniel chapter 2. And so sometime back, you may recognize some of the visuals here because I did a, a lesson on, on the book of Daniel. We, we did a series of studies on the book of Daniel. And so we spent uh, a lot of time talking about Daniel chapter 2. But we remember that Daniel was a part of those that were taken captive from Ju Judah in about 605 B.C. by the Babylonians, as God had foretold. And they were taken into captivity, and there were three times that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came into Judea, and they took people captive. And the final time, I believe, was in 586, when basically the city was leveled, it was destroyed, and all the people remainder of the people basically were carried into Babylonian captivity. But among the first that were taken in around 605 was Daniel. And Daniel was chosen among other young men of his age as the, as the conquerors came into Jerusalem and into Judea. They were looking for young men who had the education and the background and the experience to possibly serve in the, in the, uh, the king's house, to serve to serve Nebuchadnezzar as a servant in his house. And so we find in Daniel chapter 1 that, that, he, that Daniel and his fellows, and we remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we remember their, uh, their uh, Chaldean names better than we remember their Hebrew names, and I won't go back and try to remember their Hebrew names. But they, among others, were put through basically three years of training and preparation to serve in the king's house. And after that three years, we find that, or during that three years, we find that, that Daniel, um, is, he's, his faith is tested because they want these young men to eat at the from the table of, of Nebuchadnezzar. They want him to have the best food, those meats and those foods that were fed to the king. And when Daniel realizes what they're trying to feed him, he's going, this violates the law of Moses. This violates the law of my God, and I cannot defile myself with these things. And he refuses to do it. And so... He talks to the man who is over them, and he persuades him to allow them not to eat those things, but rather eat a very simple diet of, 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 uh, of vegetables and, and water and to see if they fare better than those who eat from the king's table. And at the end of the day, they fared much better. And the scripture tells us that God was with them. And because of their faithfulness to God, God blesses Daniel and his fellows uh, through all, throughout their time in Babylon because God had a special purpose for Daniel. And part of that purpose that we find here in Daniel chapter 2, because as we, as we see here uh, in Daniel chapter 2, that it says in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so he's assumed after his conquering, he's become back, he's become the king, he's, he's uh, succeeded his father as the king, and he's in his second year, and he has a dream, and this dream is troubling to him, and he, he, he's so troubling he calls all of the people, all of his soothsayers and magicians and sorcerers and the Chaldeans. And he says, I've had this terrible dream. I need you to tell me what it means. And they said, fine, tell us what your dream was. We'll tell you what it means. And he said, no, if I tell you what my dream is, you'll make up something. that <laughs> You can tell me what it means. You tell me what, it, what my dream was, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. And they go, that's impossible. That's impossible. And he says, fine, I don't need you then. Off with their heads. <laughs> So he's marching them all off to the gallows. 
And among those who are being gathered up is Daniel and his friends. They don't know anything about this. And so Daniel inquires, what's going on? What's, where are you taking us? And, they t- and the sergeant who comes to take him says, the king's had this dream. He wants somebody to interpret it, but he ha- you have to tell him what it means so he'll know you can interpret it. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 wait, wait, stop. Let me, have, let me have audience with the king. And so he goes to the king and he says, just give me time and I'll come back and I'll tell you the dream and the interpretation. And so Daniel goes home. He and his fellows pray through the night and in the middle of the night, God gives Daniel a vision and reveals to him what the dream was and the interpretation. And so we jump ahead. <clears throat> and we read, we see here that he comes before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, what you've asked of men is impossible. No one can do what you've asked, but there is a God in heaven. And it is he who reveals to you this prophecy which he's given you in this dream. He's going to tell you what the dream is and what it means. And so he tells him, this is what you saw in your dream. You saw this image. And this image uh, had a head of gold and arms and a breast of silver. And its belly and its thighs of bron- were of bronze. Its legs and its irons were of clay and iron, iron mixed with clay. And so this is, this is what it looked like. And, and, so, and then he goes on to tell him what... Those things represent, and he says, what God is telling you, he's revealing to you, is there's going to be this series of kingdoms. He said, and the first kingdom is you, Nebuchadnezzar, it's the Babylonian Empire. And we see here the, the, the years of the reign of the Babylonian Empire. And following you is going to be another kingdom. It's going to be inferior to yours, but it's still going to be a world power, and that would be the Medes and the Persians. And we find that during the lifetime of Daniel, the Medes and the Persians would conquer the Babylonians, and they would become that next world power. Following them would be the Greek Empire, and he gives some description about what it would be like. But that was, we recognize uh, that the Greek Empire came in, in 330 B.C., and it conquered very quickly. And that was the third, um, and, and uh, that was the third kingdom, the third empire in the succession. And finally, he said that would be the Roman Empire, that he doesn't specifically identify them, but he describes what this empire would be like. And we understand it, that it is the Roman Empire, which came into power around 63 B.C. And Daniel goes on to say, and this is the important part. <laughs> this was the part that we were getting to. Um, and in these days, in the days of these kings, speaking about the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. God says, God, in the days of the Roman Empire, God's going to establish a kingdom that is eternal. It will never be destroyed. It will stand forever. And so this prophecy was from the time of Daniel to the time of Jesus was in the forefront of the minds of the children of Israel because they had this promise and they were looking forward to this kingdom that God was going to establish. And they understood that the king of this kingdom was going to be the Messiah, which also was, was prophesied, which we, in shadowy uh, prophecies throughout the Old Testament, they, the, uh, the foretelling of the coming Messiah, the king and his kingdom. And they looked this, for this to be an earthly kingdom, and an earthly king that would restore uh, Israel to its prominence back when David was king, when they, when they conquered all of the land around Palestine. And so this is a very important prophecy in, in, in the, in the uh, Old Testament. And, <clears throat> sorry, I'll get ahead of myself. But, so just to 
just to follow that through, when we come to the New Testament, again, all these years they're looking for it, what happens? John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness, and what is he preaching? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's almost here. That got people's attention. They've been looking for this for a long time. And then Jesus begins his personal ministry, and what does he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus begins to teach them about the kingdom of heaven and many things about the kingdom of heaven. And then we read in Matthew chapter 16 when they come to the coast of Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asked his disciples, his apostles, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say that you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. You have come to understand through your time with me and through the revelation of my Father that I am the Christ. I am that Messiah. And he said, and upon this rock, this confession that he is the Christ, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and I give to you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You see what he just did? He used the church and the kingdom interchangeably. And remember that. He's going to give Peter the keys to the kingdom. And again, this is ground that we've covered pretty recently. But it's important to just to remind ourselves. And so, we, we, we fast forward to the time after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? And we see this, this fulfillment of Peter using the keys to unlock the kingdom at Pentecost, and we, we, we covered that pretty recently. So again, we see these prophecies of the kingdom, and we see that fulfillment of these things was going to be at Pentecost. So quit now, quickly, another prophecy from Isaiah chapter 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow into it. So this is Isaiah chapter 2. This is uh, a couple of years earlier than the prophecy that we just read in Daniel. So this was something else that was foretelling something about the, the kingdom, the church that God was going to establish. We think about the Lord's house, the Lord's house, the Lord's, where's the, Lord, the Lord's habitation is. And to the people at that time, that habitation was in Jerusalem. It was the temple, right? That was the temple of God. That's, that's where they where God dwelt in their minds. That's where God, that was the dwelling place of God. And so here's Isaiah saying, there's another house of God. There is a house of God that's going to be established in the last, in the last days. And when we hear that phrase, the last days, the Bible speaks of the last days. It's always pointing to the time of Christ. It's pointing to the time of the last days, the last dispensation of time that you and I live in today, which is called, which we refer to as the Christian age. And so it's referring to, the, to, to the, the days of the Messiah. And he says, and in those days, God's going to establish a kingdom, I'm sorry, his house on the top of the mountains, and all nations are going to flow into it. Again, this was something that was foreign to the children of Israel because they were the chosen people of God. And so, you know, for God's going to have a habitation and other people are going to flow into it, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, all nations we're going to flow into this. And so this was a mystery to them. And it says, many people shall come and say, 
let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so again, we see these clues, these hints that are given here in this prophecy of Isaiah. Um, number one, that it's going to be in the last days, in times of the Messiah. The Lord's house is going to be established. It's going to happen during that time. We know what the Lord's house is, and this is one of the things that Ian covered when he talked about the church, some of the different names of the church, that it's the church of Christ, it's the body of Christ, it's the house of God, right? Remember this verse, these things, this is 1 Timothy 3, these things I write you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, the dwelling place of God is the church, <clears throat> We are the, the dwelling place of God, that, he, that, that God dwells in our heart. He dwells in his people. The temple of God is the church, his kingdom, his people. <clears throat> he talked about all nations flowing into it, and we, we're going to see this fulfilled um, in the book of Acts. And we'll talk a little bit about that more in a minute. And the Lord will teach us his ways. What did Jesus t tell us? Tell his apostles in the Great Commission, go preach the gospel and to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. The ways of the Lord, the ways of Christ will be taught. The word of the Lord will go forth from Mount Zion and from Jerusalem. Mount Zion, of course, was one of the mountains on which Jerusalem was built. But it is also the poetic name for Jerusalem. And it's referred to, it signifies in other places the eternal city of God or the kingdom of God or the church. <clears throat> okay. So we talked about, so we've kind of covered very quickly some of those prophecies. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, we see the fulfillment of the prophecies, the promises that God had made concerning his coming kingdom, that eternal kingdom that would never be destroyed. And on the day of Pentecost, it says that the apostles in obedience to Christ were in Jerusalem in one place with one accord. What did those prophecies point to? that the word of the Lord was going to go forth from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be the birthplace of the church. It was going to be the place where the gospel would originate and it would go from there to go throughout the world. God got the attention of the people when he, when he sent a sound of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. People were drawn to this. And so this got people's attention. Something special was happening. Um, and we see there because of the feast day that there were present from there were Jews present from every nation under heaven. So that's kind of part one of fulfillment of all nations flowing into it, right? First of all, we see the Jews who've come from all nations under heaven. They're going to hear the gospel preached here on the first at the first preaching of the gospel at the birthplace of the church, the birthplace of the kingdom, and all nations you know, we're going to flow into it. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. We didn't talk about Joel chapter 2, but that's what it pointed to, right? In the latter days, in the last days, God was going to pour out of his spirit on all flesh. On all flesh doesn't mean on everyone, but it means what? On all nations, on all people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. And on my, my, my servants and my handmaids, he was going to pour out his spirit on on those, on the, on his children, on those who would become a part of the family of God, <clears throat> and so they were. Again, they were. They began to speak as they were directed by the Holy Spirit, and they preached the 
Peter stood up and he preached the first gospel sermon, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, and it's preached for the very first time. And a remnant, which one of the prophecies referred to, and there's 3,000 of those people who were there that day, heard, believed, and asked, what shall we do? And we see the first instructions that are giving, cons given concerning how, we are, how people are to respond to the gospel of Christ. From Peter, when he told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, as promises to you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That promise, those instructions have never changed since Pentecost. The gift of the Holy Spirit is promised to those that obey, and for the first time, people are baptized into Christ. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and the church is established, and the Lord, the first time we see the, the church spoken of as being in existence at the end of the end of that chapter when it says that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Okay, now, the second part. <laughs> Why did God choose Pentecost? Have you, have you ever thought about that? Why did God choose the day of Pentecost to be the birthday of the church, to be the time of the establishment of the kingdom, to be the time that the gospel would first be preached to the world. Have you ever thought about that? <clears throat> you know, there were three feast days in which the, the males of Israel were required to travel to Jerusalem to stand, come before the Lord, to offer sacrifices, and to appear before the Lord on those special days. Um, the first one was that we recognize as the Feast of the Passover. And we know that the Feast of the Passover was initiated when the children of Israel were still in Egypt, right? And God was going to bring them out with a mighty hand. And God brought, you know, he, he told Pharaoh to let his people go through Moses. And Pharaoh would say, okay, and then he would repent. And then God would have to bring plagues upon him. And we see that through that series of plagues, he finally persuaded Pharaoh that he was going to have to let them go. And so the last of those plagues was the plague of the death angel, which was going to kill the firstborn of all of Egypt. And so God prepared the children of Israel, and he said, you're going to take a, a, a lamb without spot of, its, of the first year, and you're going to sacrifice, and you're going to take the blood of that lamb, and you're going to put it over the, post, over the lintel of your doors, over your house, and over the side post of your door. And that when, I, when the death angel sees that blood of the lamb, he's going to pass over. Now you think about that. That's kind of strange, isn't it? That's kind of a, that was kind of a strange way for God to tell them to mark themselves, to mark their houses so that they would be recognized by the death angel as his people and that they would not be killed, their firstborn would not be killed as a part of, what, of this plague, this sentence that God was bringing upon Egypt. And we, we, it's obvious, isn't it? That the Passover, when, when God instituted the Passover, he had in mind the last Passover. The last Passover was when Jesus was crucified. That day was selected by God way back there in Egypt because God had a plan. You see, God had a plan, and in that plan, he designed, he appointed the, the Passover, the Feast of Passover at the time that he would provide what mankind truly needed, which was not simply 
deliverance from Egyptian bondage, but deliverance from sin. That, that reconciliation that God was going to provide through Jesus back to himself. And so you, we see God's plan and preparation in that feast day that he appointed uh, called the Passover. Uh, what about Pentecost? Pentecost was called, also called the Feast of Weeks. And we'll talk about that in a minute. In the, in the Feast of Firstfruits, and it happened 50 days starting from the Sabbath day that was a part of the week in which the, the Passover fell and numbering 50 days from the day after that, which would have been the first day of the week, starting with that day and, and going seven weeks. So it'd be seven days, days in one week from that Sabbath that was a part of Passover week. So it was called the Feast of Weeks and it was all call, also called the Feast of the, of the First Fruits because it was a time that you know, after the Passover and all the, everybody had come to Jerusalem, they had to go back home for what? They had to get the harvest in. It was time to harvest the spring crop. And so they had to go back and they had to harvest the wheat. There was a wheat harvest that took place early in that, in that time of year. There was another harvest that took place later in the year, but for the, the spring crop and according to everything I understand, it was the wheat crop that they had a, I don't know if that's winter wheat or what it is, but... But they, they had a wheat crop. They had, so they went back and they, they got in the harvest and then they came back. When they came back, they brought offering. They brought grain offerings. Offering of the first fruits of their harvest uh, were a part of that uh, Pentecost. And then we had the Feast of Tabernacles. And this, this uh, feast day happens around September, October time frame on our calendar. And this is where they remembered, again, so the, the, the Pentecost was, was a day of thanksgiving. It was a day of, of rejoicing and thanking God for the, the bountifulness of, of, the, of the harvest. And, and then there was tabernacles, which pointed to the time of wandering, the 40 years of wandering after God brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they dwelt in tents or in booths or in tabernacles uh, during that time of testing before they could enter into the promised land. And so God appointed this feast day Again, that they would all come and they would, for a week, they would live in these booths and they would offer certain sacrifices and they would celebrate and they would have, a, have feast days uh, during that time. So it, it was, a, again, a very, a very great time of celebration. But think about now, let's think about Pentecost. So Pentecost literally means 50th. So again, so it's that 50th day from the Passover. <clears throat> Do you know what today is? <laughs> Do you know what today is? Now, I'm going to tell you, when I started this study, it never occurred to me what today is. <clears throat> I'll give you a clue. <clears throat> On April the 9th, we, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday, or as most people refer to it as Easter. And that would have been immediately following what? Passover. The, if you were Jews, you would have celebrated, if we were Jewish, we would have celebrated Passover immediately before that. And that was on April the 9th. So if we start with April the 9th and we count the days to the end of April, that's 22 days, right? <laughs> What's today? Today is May the 28th. 22 plus 28 is what? It's 50. If we were Jewish, today we would be celebra celebrating Pentecost. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It, it kind of gave me chills when I realized that. Again, I, I was, it wasn't planned that way. Um, 
But here we are talking about Pentecost on what would have been the day of Pentecost. In Leviticus chapter 23, <clears throat> the instructions for the day of Pentecost, God gives the instructions for the, 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 the offerings of, of Pentecost. And he says, again, counting the days to the, from the Sabbath. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. Again, this is talking about immediately after the, the Passover. He said, from that day you, you brought forth the sheaf of wave offering. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after seven, the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord, and you shall bring forth from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah, and they shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. And they are the first fruits to the Lord. So this is instructions on this offering that they were to make. So they were take the take of the first fruits of their crop and they were to bake these loaves of bread and they were to bake, bake two and they would, be, they would be a wave offering before the Lord. And it's interesting when we look at this, first of all, that he says, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So that's something maybe we're not familiar with. So following the feast of Passover and immediately after the Sabbath of that week, which would be Sunday, the first day of the week, they were to bring an offering, which also was of the first fruits of their crops, of the previous crops that they have, had harvested. And as I understand, this would have been of the barley harvest. And they're to bring an offering, a wave offering before the Lord on that day. And it's an offering of first fruits, and it is without leaven. It is without leaven. It is to be pure, and it is to be without leaven. So that's interesting, isn't it? So if you think about the Passover when Jesus was crucified, when the priests came in to do this wave offering of the first fruits on that Sunday afterwards, what also happened on that Sunday? Jesus rose from the dead, didn't he? And every detail, God had a design, didn't he? What was that design of the first fruits, the first fruit offering of, of the first Sunday, the first Lord's Day following that Passover, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that Christ was raised from the dead on that day. It is amazing <laughs> the detail which God has put into his plan and into his word. And when we find those nuggets, when we find those nuggets, it's just so faith building to me to see the depth of God's plan. <clears throat> and then he says, and then you shall offer the new grain offering. So this is back to Pentecost, what they were doing on Pentecost. The new grain offering to the Lord, and you'll bring from your dwelling two wave loaves. So you made these two loaves of bread. You made them with leaven. You brought them before the priest. He's going to wave them before the altar of the Lord as an offering. A couple of things interesting here. Number one, <clears throat> sorry, um, got ahead. <laughs> Number one, that there's two, there's two loaves. Why two loaves? And they both contain leaven. And so in my reading and, and studying and understanding, I believe that this would, these represent the Jew and the Gentile, the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> both contain leaven because they of themselves are not, are not, or they are impure, right? 
Without the righteousness of Christ, they are impure, but they are made righteous by the blood of Christ. And so these two wave offerings are made before the Lord on what day? On the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> on the day of Pentecost. Interesting. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two. <clears throat> you see the symbolism there? Thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both in God in one body through the cross, there, through, through the cross, thereby putting death to the enmity, putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the, the Jews, both. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but listen, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Kind of pulls it all together, doesn't it? What was God signifying in the offerings of Pentecost? He was signifying a new day, wasn't he? Where both Jew and Gentile would... Be, would, would bring their offerings together through Christ before God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief, chief cornerstone of what? The church, the kingdom, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. What's he talking about? The house of God, the kingdom of God, the church of God that we are all a part of that began on Pentecost. So we, we think about the first fruits, the celebration, and we see that the first fruits of the offerings was representative of what? The first fruits of the gospel. Those who first heard the gospel and were the first fruits of the gospel when they obeyed it on the day of Pentecost, the first fruits of the gospel message. And there's another part. <clears throat> there's another part to Pentecost. So one of the other things that the Jewish people recognized when they celebrated Pentecost was the giving of the law of Moses. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember those prophecies about the law was going to go forth from Jerusalem and from Zion? That was happening. Well, that's what happened on Pentecost, wasn't it? The, the New Testament came into effect. The new law of Christ was preached the gospel of Christ and all the things that Christ taught us to observe, that law of Christ, that word of the law of Christ would come forth from Jerusalem. <clears throat> but it's interesting that this, this was also celebrated as the beginning or the birth of Judaism. The, so how, how does that happen? Well, if you go back and you look again, that first Passover was when they were in Egypt, right? And God brought them out with a mighty hand. And he brought them to the Red Sea. And remember how the Egyptians, he opened the Red Sea. The Egyptians tried to follow him in, in, them in. And they were, the sea closed up on them. And they crossed through, but they crossed through on dry ground. And they, they traveled. And where did they travel to? Where was their destination? It was Mount Sinai. <clears throat> they were traveling to Mount Sinai because God had called them there. And the Jewish scholars and historians believe that where they were 50 days from the time of the, the Passover was at the foot of Sinai, that they had arrived at Sinai 
to, relieve, to receive the law of God. And so when they celebrated Pentecost, uh, they celebrated that as the giving of the law. If we read in Exodus chapter 19, it talks about when they, when they were, came to the foot of, of Sinai. It says, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain, before Mount Sinai. And there, then it came to pass on the third day, this is what they would estimate to be the, uh, the day of Pentecost. In the morning that there were thundering and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. God was getting their attention. God was getting their attention. It was scary. There was lightning and thundering. It was loud. It was dark. And it says they all trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. So they come and stood. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. <clears throat> and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. And then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who have come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Don't you touch the mountain, the Lord had told them. You put a barrier around it so people, because if they touch the mountain, they're going to they're perish. They're going to be put to death. And Moses went back down. And what happened when Moses went back down? God spoke. <laughs> I've never heard the voice of God. <clears throat> but this would tell me this was a scary thing. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. What are we recognizing here? The Ten Commandments. God's giving them the Ten Commandments. And he's speaking to them with his own voice. From the mountain and it's loud and it's dark and it's scary <clears throat> it says now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and he goes on to to and we're not going to read through all the ten commandments that god speaks to them there but following that it says the lightning flashes the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and when the people saw it they trembled and stood afar off <clears throat> you've heard the expression quaking in your boots <laughs> i think that's probably maybe even beyond that how, how, how fearful this was. <clears throat> and then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. We're, we're literally going to die from fear if God continues to speak to us like that. <clears throat> and Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you so that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. God was trying, was teaching them a lesson. And what was that? To have the fear of the Lord. To have the fear of the Lord to guide you so that you know what God expects and what he doesn't expect. And that you do those things that are right and you do those things that God has commanded you to do. You're directed by the fear of the Lord. So the people stood afar, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And so following this, we see that we're going to find that God calls Moses up the mountain. And he's there for 40 days. And God is expounding to him more things of his expectations, such things as how to build the tabernacle and how to, to build the, uh, 
the Ark of the Covenant and, and some other parts of the worship that they were going to, was going to be a part of Judaism, a part of the law of Moses. And he's there for 40 days. And after almost 40 days, all those people down at the bottom are going, oh, where is Moses? I think, he's, I think he's dead. I think God killed him. I don't think he's coming back. I mean, that was their attitude. They begin to become impatient. And so they go and they, they fall back right into their old ways. They've, they've witnessed all the miracles of how God brought them out of Egypt. They fall back into their old ways. They go to Aaron. They convince them, him to make them a golden calf, an image to worship and declare, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And we think, how could they be that silly? <laughs> Sometimes we ask ourselves, how can we be so stupid? <clears throat> how can we be forgetful? <clears throat> But nevertheless, when God sees this, and so they, they, they are having this pagan festival and all of the revelry that goes with it, and God says, Moses, get down. For those people that I brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And Moses goes down, and he's got the tables of stone that, where God has, with his own finger, carved the Ten Commandments into those. When Moses gets close enough to see what's going on in his anger, he throws those down at the foot of the mountain and they break and he goes and he takes that golden calf and he throws it in the fire and burns it and he grinds it to powder and he throws the powder in the water and he tells the people to drink it <clears throat> but their rebellion goes on and so Moses says those are who on the Lord's side come to me and the scripture says that all the Levites maybe others but all the Levites came to Moses and Moses says get your swords <clears throat> and he says you go out and those those who continue to rebel you put them to death. And on that day, about 3,000 people fell. Is that interesting to you? Is that interesting to you that at the time, of course, it wasn't on one day, but at the time of the giving of the law of Moses, what happened? 3,000 3, people were put to death. But what happened on the last Pentecost, the giving of the new law? 3,000 people were saved. <clears throat> It's interesting that God makes that comparison for us. Hebrews chapter 12, the reading of this morning, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, may not be touched and be burned with fire. And so the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that they should not be spoken to anymore for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or put to death so that he... The writer of Hebrews, we believe to be the Apostle Paul, says this is not, when we come to, to, the, to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not, this is not the approach. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, all those whom we have fellowship with, in the family of God, an innumerable, innumerable company of angels, the general assembly probably representing all of those who are part of the kingdom of God, who were faithful to God under the old covenant from the beginning of time, and then all of those who are born again into the family of God through Jesus Christ, the church of the firstborn, who are registered, whose names are written in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect through the blood of Christ, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
It's interesting, isn't it? The blessings, the miraculous, marvelous blessings that we have to be a part of this plan that God has had from the, before the time the world began, that we are so blessed to be a part of that number, a part of the redeemed. Let us never forget who we are and what we are a part of in Jesus Christ. But what about the Feast of Tabernacles? We didn't talk about it. Interesting. I think that one's yet to be revealed. You say, why, why would you say that? <clears throat> well, think about it. Think about what they were celebrating. They were celebrating what? That time of wandering in the wilderness before they entered into the promised land. That's kind of a little bit like what we are in the church today, right? We're awaiting that entrance into eternity, into that promised land of heaven in this testing ground of wandering, this testing ground, ground of Canaan. And, you know, Paul kind of points to this when he talks about that there's a longing in us to put off what? This tabernacle, this tent of flesh, to be clothed with what? That eternal body that we look forward to. So there, therefore, I say maybe that one symbolically hasn't been fulfilled yet, but that's what we look forward to. If you're not a part of the kingdom of God this morning, if you're not a part of, his, of Christ's church, his body, the house of God, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you would come to him in obedience, the, the directions given by Peter there on Pentecost are still the same. Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall re-gift, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> for this promise is to you, to your children, to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God. We'll call. If we can assist you this morning, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that's been selected. Uh -huh.